0: Hey, Amarillo, I'm Jason Boyette, and you're listening to Hey, Amarillo, the interview podcast featuring some of the most interesting people and stories of Amarillo, Texas. This episode is sponsored by Wick Realty. Last fall, Katie Wick and her agents helped me buy and sell our family's home, and I wholeheartedly recommend them. They're invested in seeing Amarillo flourish economically and socially for all groups of people. Learn more at wickrealty.com. That's w-i-e-c-k-realty.com. Today's guest is Dr. Ryan Pennington. And I, I know I opened this podcast talking about featuring the most interesting people in the city. Well, Ryan may be at the top of that list. He has a doctorate in linguistics. He spent years working as a Bible translator in Papua New Guinea which is located on an island in the Pacific, north of Australia, if you don't know where it is. Uh, And I imagine most people don't. He lived there for several years, completely isolated from uh, the rest of our world. But after that season of his life was over, he ended up in Amarillo. It was just a few years ago. And here, he encountered an extraordinary population of refugees. He saw some big barriers that were keeping those refugees from finding success in Amarillo, and so today Ryan is the founder and director of the Refugee Language Project. It's an organization associated with Redeemer Christian Church, and through this project, he's working to educate and build community among the city's international residents. So here's Ryan Pennington. Ryan Pennington, welcome to the Hey Amarillo podcast. Thanks for being here. Thanks, Jason. I'm glad to be here. There are so many things I want to talk about with you, but before we get into the meat of all the stuff that you're doing related to Amarillo's refugee population, I'd like to hear a little bit of your history. And so tell me what you did before you ended up in Amarillo and then sort of what was the process to bring you here?
1: Yeah, so my wife is actually from Amarillo. She grew up here. Uh, Crystal Simpson is her was her maiden name anyway. And uh, we met at Dallas Baptist University. And while we were there studying the Bible, uh, we decided to go overseas uh, and work with an organization uh, called Wycliffe Bible Translators. Uh, and so we spent the next eight or nine years uh, in the country of Papua New Guinea, which is just north of Australia. Analyzing an unwritten language, developing an alphabet uh, for that language group, and analyzing the grammar um, as a kind of as a foundation for future Bible translation work there. So that occupied us for uh, a long time until three years ago, we decided to move back. Mm-hmm. That work was
0: do you consider it sort of a missions type of work? Is it more a linguist project? I mean, how, how do you categorize what you're doing there?
1: Yeah, it was some of both. Um, you know, I'm definitely a, a devout believer uh, in Jesus Christ, and so that certainly led to my mission there. But interestingly, my job was really much more about uh, serving as a linguistics consultant, So that meant that I was um, helping other translators to understand more about the languages they work with. I was training Papua New Guineans to understand their own languages better. I was uh, writing journal articles or editing, uh, things like that, doing a lot more like that. So Wycliffe's role in countries like Papua New Guinea is varied. Uh, They do a lot of work you'd classify as language development. Which means a lot of stuff like literacy activities, teaching people to read and write, uh, et cetera. Did
0: you have any experience with the languages spoken there before you went there? I mean, what was the preparation process? No, for not that? really.
1: We uh, we had we really did just like most people listening to this. Uh, we had no idea where in the world Papua New Guinea <laughs> was. Is that Africa? <laughs> First, South you America? found it on oh, the what map, is it? And then right? <laughs> And uh, but it was the place where Wycliffe um, was most interested in sending people because it's the most linguistically diverse nation in the world. Over 800 languages in a place the size of California. Wow! Um, only eight million people in the country, but over 800 languages. So you've got basically less than a thousand uh, people speaking most of these languages. So it's like each community has its own yeah. language, or you can literally dialect throw or... a frisbee from one language to another. And they're, they're kept apart from each other due to their uh, geography, the terrain. Okay. So we lived up in the mountains uh, there about a mile high. And it was rugged terrain. We couldn't get there except by helicopter, no electricity or running water, extremely remote. So, yeah, I mean, I, I didn't have any prior experience with this group. So even that first day we were dropped off by helicopter, Uh, The helicopter, our escape plan really, uh, took off, and there we were surrounded by a throng of hundreds of people speaking some language we didn't understand, performing cultural rituals that we didn't understand, and it it was absolutely terrifying.
0: Was it a written (laughs) language, or was it primarily just an oral? Completely oral. They had
1: never written any of their stories or history down though they had been recently introduced to mobile phones, to smartphones. And so they had gone from this oral society into this in-between stage where they were wanting to document their history. They were wanting to text each other, uh, and yet they had no ability to. Right. They didn't know how to write their own language. Exactly.
0: Tell me about yourself. I I know that there are some people who sort of— have, um, well, for whom learning a language is a little bit easier. And I don't know if it's a certain affinity or a certain way that their brains form, but they can pick up languages faster than other people. Are,
1: Are you in that category? No, I'm absolutely not in that category, actually. I'm someone who understands puzzles. I'm someone who can look at a problem and find a solution. And that's what descriptive linguistics is really about. It's about analyzing how people actually speak and finding the patterns, finding the rules that are at work, the underlying things that are happening that we don't put words to. uh, That's a very different skill set from someone who can just, a polyglot, for example, who Mm -hmm. can just quickly pick up languages with relative ease. Most people aren't like that. Now I've found that the more I've understood about languages, the easier it is to grasp uh, difficult languages like Somali, for example, Um, because I understand what's happening Mm -hmm. underneath, but maybe more importantly is the more you see about culture, it, it, helps you to connect with the people and it makes you more motivated to learn the language. That's maybe where my real gifting is. Where did you grow up? Uh, I grew up in Gig Harbor, Washington, not far from Seattle. And my dad had been in the Navy there. And then we moved to Houston when I was in high school.
0: As a kid, I mean, did you see yourself going into the ministry? Did you see that that puzzle solving or you know language sort of focus developing before you got into college?
1: Uh, no, actually, the language side of things didn't dawn on me until I was uh, a junior at TBU, uh, Dallas Baptist University. Though my dad had language influence in his life, but I, I didn't grow up planning to be a missionary or something like that. But I did grow up seeing my dad. um, You know, we'd we'd be in Olympia, Washington, and he'd pull off on the side of the road, leave me in the car and go drink from a flask with um, some homeless guy. Hmm. And I just noticed that my dad was very much about valuing people, sharing a moment with them rather than chastising them. And I think that seeing that has always kept me uh, always moving toward how I can do that in, in my own way for people. And so when I heard about Wycliffe Bible Translators, it was a way for me to go and connect with people from other cultures and obviously apply what I believed um, from the Bible. But but more than that, it, it was a way for me to do something concrete to serve people. It was a way for me to use what I felt like were my skills to do something I don't know, long, long-term and sacrificial. Okay.
0: I mean, obviously, the, um, you know, the transition from even living in the Dallas area and uh, being in school to being dropped off in Papua New Guinea is a pretty big transition culturally, geographically, linguistically. I mean, tell me, dur- during your years there, what were some of the things maybe that surprised you or that you learned
1: about yourself or about the world or mm. about you know, outside of this area? Man, there are so many things, so many ways to answer that question, but I landed in that village, uh, the village of South, up there in what felt like the middle of nowhere, and I felt so capable, right? I had a master's degree. I I, I knew how to drive through rush hour traffic in Dallas. Um, Which is a skill. It is. Legitimately. (laughs) And I... I felt really good about myself and my ability to do things. And in that place, I was nothing. Uh, I was a baby again. And it was humiliating uh, to, to have to face that fact that, that I was starting over. So I think I learned what makes us human, what, what, what we have in common often isn't on, how do I say, it isn't the strengths that we share. It's, it's, it's deeper. So I've learned to connect with a lot of different type of people. I can always find something to connect with people about. So Papua New Guinea had a way of of shaping that. It also had a way of uh, changing the way I think about God, the way I think about prayer. You know, one thing I notice here is that people are very consumed by the idea of safety, very obsessed with praying for safety and 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 protecting themselves from a possibility even of being uncomfortable, let alone in a potentially unsafe uh, environment. And my attitude toward that's changed. I feel much more interested when I pray to pray that when I'm in unsafe situations that I would have a good attitude, but not that I would somehow be protected from adverse situations.
0: Well, you don't get a lot of that in the New Testament anyway. I mean, there's there's not a lot of blessed are the people who are in safety, you know. That's it's, right.
1: There's no hedges, protection, and acts. So. so
0: let's talk about the process of coming back here uh, after spending so many years away. Whether it involves Amarello or not, psychologically, I'm interested in what it feels like to be in this environment, you know, as far removed from American culture and everything as you can get, and then to all of a sudden be right back in it. Hmm. Was was there a Did you need sort of a a transition window to get used to rush hour traffic and signage and the noise and all that kind of stuff?
1: Absolutely. And I'm honestly, even three years in, I still feel like I'm in that window at times. Um, I'll never really be the same. But in those first six months in particular, I really, really struggled to... I mean, even walking into a grocery store and seeing all of the tortillas on an aisle was so overwhelming. We would just run out of the store, incapable of making that sort of simple decision. Paralysis due yeah. to having too many options. Yes, exactly. Too many options. And also being confronted with the with how focused people tended to be on their own lives and on their own wealth and on their own um, country. So much so like focused on, uh, for example, the national stage fo- focused on how they were voting at the expense of how they were engaged in their own neighborhoods. It was a little bewildering for me. It felt like there wasn't much community uh, in person. Everyone had moved to Facebook while I was away, mm-hmm. um, and had moved onto smartphones in that in that ten years. Um, so that it, was a lot happened in that ten year period. Yeah, exactly. In the I mean, think I I moved away. I was out in the village, and I found out that Barack Obama was elected um, from a Papua New Guinean uh, mm-hmm. weeks after he had been elected. So that's that's how long I'd been I mean I was gone for that period of time and so you know so much has changed in our culture since then I'd I'd like to hear about the process
0: of deciding after you came back did you come back with the idea that you were going to end up in Amarillo or was that uh, a process that kind of happened after after you got back to the states
1: Well after eight years in papua new guinea we had moved to australia to Cairns, australia for me to do my phd degree in linguistics and and while i was studying there my dad died okay and so that that's that was three years ago now and in that time i i flew back my wife was pregnant with their third uh, child and i flew back home and gave his eulogy and in doing so i had to confront the fact that the more academic i became the further removed from people I became. So I went to Papua New Guinea to connect with people, to serve and meet direct needs of people. And the more I researched, the more I was behind a computer screen consulting. Right. And then I was training teachers. And uh, I just felt like I kept getting further removed from what was fulfilling for me. So that's what led us to come back. But we had no idea where we'd end up. We just came here as a starting place. But... In those next few months, I learned about the refugee population that is here, 15,000 people. And I thought, surely a linguist can have some insight into this world. Surely there's something that I could do. So that's what kept me here.
0: Knowing that your wife was from here, did, was Amarillo on your radar as a place that you might end up at some point?
1: No, actually. I mean, it was a safe place to start. Mm-hmm. My kids had their cousins. My wife had her parents. It was it was a comfortable place to begin to find our way back into this culture again. But we didn't have really many plans. It was kind of a radical decision we made to leave what we had been planning to do. We planned to be in Papua New Guinea for 30 years. Um, so it was... It was very unexpected when when it started to dawn on us that Amarillo was actually a place we wanted to stay.
0: So tell me what you found when you got here and began to realize the extent of the refugee population. You know, the number of people groups represented, the number of languages spoken. Was that something you had a sense of before you got here or like was a lot of that a
1: surprise as you started to sure. dig in? It was a complete surprise. Like so many people I talk with now I always came home here to visit Southwest Amarillo, and I had spent no time in the northeast quadrant of the city, um, and knew just very little. I mean, I had heard little statements about refugees, but I didn't understand what was really here. And and to to learn more, I started. Uh, checking out Amarillo College, their ESL program. I started going and observing at the library, observing uh, ESL classes at Paramount Baptist and First Baptist and Steve Woodward at the International Learning Center and all these other places to to try to understand what's happening and what isn't.
0: I'm thinking of listeners who have heard, maybe in the newspaper or other places, they've heard that Amarillo has uh, a large refugee population. Or they've seen maybe people walking up and down the street, you know, in certain parts of town, or some of the restaurants, you know, on Emerald Boulevard, but don't have a sense of how broad it is. So, can you paint that picture uh, yeah. for people who may not know? This is how many people are here. This is where they're from. This is why they're here.
1: Yeah. So, you think about the fact that first and foremost, we have about at best best I can do is to say we have about fifteen thousand refugees. That includes maybe 5,000 people from Burma or Myanmar. But even if you think about just that specific country, um, we have uh, eight to 10 different language groups from that country represented, and they don't communicate with each other by and large. They all have different churches, different beliefs, uh, very different orthographies, uh, writing systems. And so even if they live next door to one another, Uh, they share very little in Hmm. terms of community. So we often think, well, at least they have each other, uh, but they don't. So that's within one country you'll see that sort of diversity, but then you have Somali people, you have Sudanese and Congolese, Iraqi and Iranian uh, people. Each of these groups has such different perspectives on the world, such different strengths and weaknesses. Every time I visit a new ESL class, I'm meeting attorneys, Judges, former police officers, business owners, uh, subsistence farmers, camel herders, you know, Mm. I mean, that's just so varied. And you talked about, I guess, the humility that was
0: required in going from here to Papua New Guinea, and the sense of starting over, and you, you didn't know anything, you didn't have any experience there. And- in one sense, that's that's the story of a lot of refugees coming here. They may have been attorneys exactly. or doctors, you know, in places that they lived, and they come here, they don't know the language, they don't have the cultural experience, they don't have the work experience, and so they end up, you know, working for a meatpacking plant or someplace like that. Right.
1: So, you know, let me tell you about this this one man uh, that that I befriended. He he started coming to my church actually, this man named Mateus. And this man had been in the United States from Congo. Uh, he had been here six years. Now so He fled the Congo after being uh, undergoing RPG fire. He'd lost his father and a few other members of his family and was handicapped and couldn't even work at the meatpacking plants. So he went from being the breadwinner to coming here and watching his uh, children while his wife chopped meat in the meatpacking plant. And I met this man, and it shocked me that he had been here six years A regular ESL student, two days a week, and couldn't introduce himself. Had no English capability. And what dawned on me um, after spending time with him was that the problem wasn't the English instruction. His instructor was a great instructor, actually. Uh, His problem was that he didn't have any relationships with people he wanted to talk to. So I'd bring him into my office. I'd just spend time with him. We'd stare at each other in silence, you know, (laughs) Uh, I'd visit his house. Uh, But over time, we built some intimacy, some trust, and he started to try out the things he'd internalized over the years. And suddenly, people are coming up to me, you know, after just a month, people are coming up to me saying, what did you do? How are you teaching him? And I'm thinking, I'm not teaching him. I'm just spending time with the guy. Then his wife had a medical issue, and people in our church had tried to have them over for a Thanksgiving meal. They brought food to them. I helped her understand how to take the medicine because she couldn't read the prescription bottles. Um, I helped her get an appointment uh, with a specialist that she wasn't able to do on her own. And by coming around them and building, uh, just supporting them and listening to them, uh, they felt like they belonged. And suddenly they were more vibrant again, more whole. And that's That's really what I'm trying to reenact because when I lived in the village, it wasn't me going out of my house that made me learn their language. It was the people who knocked quietly on my door and came and sat down in my place, in my safe space. All I wanted to do was hide in my bed and sleep and cling to my own culture, Mm -hmm. desperately cling to any music, any videos, something that was American to make me feel right. And these people would come and bring food, and introduce themselves. And it was them who gradually led me out of my doors, out across the village, and into the community. And that's what—that's exactly what we're trying to do here.
0: Yeah. So it's—it's it's built less on uh, maybe a, a formal student-teacher arrangement, and more on relationships.
1: That's right. Absolutely about relationships. Consider it more like a mentorship okay. program.
0: Tell me about the process of coming here encountering the refugee population, starting to sense those needs, and then starting the Refugee Language Project?
1: You know, to be honest, when I started the project, I had it in my mind that I was the answer (laughs) to their problems. And it's taken the last year to recognize that they are the answer to their problems. I don't have the solutions. I have some insight, yes, but, but I feel like I'm having more success now that I'm recognizing their own potential. So, I've, I've thought long and hard about what the problems are in this city and, you know, I see a lot of fear uh, on both sides. I see fear from the refugees and I see fear from Americans who don't want to, you know, cross I-40. What um, are the refugees afraid of? They're afraid, well, you know, when they watch the news, they're afraid that they're going to be sent home. They don't understand often. Uh, their rights. They don't understand the nuance that they are not illegal immigrants. Mm-hmm. Refugees are. That's a legal status. They were brought here by our country, and they have full rights, just like I do. And so that's something they that have to be told. But they're also just afraid of people's looks. You know, I have a Muslim friend who he goes into subway and he doesn't eat certain meats, and so he asks them to change their gloves. And the kinds of looks he gets when he makes a polite request like that is really challenging and it, and it builds fear into his heart about what other people are thinking. And so when I see this, or, and I remember that people don't learn languages primarily in a classroom. I mean, it's great. Classrooms are an irreplaceable part of learning a language, but when we actually really legitimately learn a language, it's not because we, I mean, think to your own life, most of us have taken a Spanish or a French class and we're not out there speaking Spanish or French fluently. Right. Well, everyone always says, well, you know, I can, understand, I can understand it okay, but I can't really speak it. Right. Well, that's because you don't have relationships where you're required to speak it. You, you have book learning, and that is very different. You don't have that internal motivation more than anything that's caused you to get out there and speak to people where you have to rely on it. And when we learn and connect our language learning to tastes and smells and sounds, that's when it really sticks in the mind. And refugees, by and large, have learned two to three or four languages already. It's not like they're incapable of learning English. They're better at that than we are. They just don't know anyone. They don't understand our culture. There's no place for them to engage with us. So this project is focused on creating those places uh, to engage with them for their benefit, uh, to equip them in our culture into leaders, build them up into leaders, but also to help uh, people in our community to meet individual refugees, shake their hands, and in question on their own time whether their own prejudices are right or wrong. Right. I was going to
0: ask uh, you. You mentioned the fears, and that people here have a fear of the refugees. What are some ways, whether you know you you go so far as to be involved in teaching ESL or something like that? But what are some ways to alleviate those fears or to work to, to bridge that gap in relationship between the other from the perspective of Texans or Amarilloans to make them feel a, a more a part of this community?
1: Yeah, I think it takes uh, the initiative to meet one person. I, by and large, it takes one person. I, I mean, I, I mentor a few different people. Uh, around the city, a few different refugees, and I often bring them to Palace uh, Coffee on 34th and Culture. And part of the point of that is for these guys to interact with our culture, but a bigger purpose is for people in our community to have the chance to shake their hand and meet them and then maybe just think about it. And I've had some people who are very angry, deeply angry about refugees here meet these individuals uh, in some of our programs, at our table talk pro- program at Margaret Wills Elementary in the spring, I had one uh, man meet a family, and he came up to me and said, I shook this man's hand. I got to know him. I saw his ability. I saw his how he treats his family. He's a supervisor uh, at Tyson Foods. This man is someone worthy of respect, and I realized I was wrong, and that is a deeper change for this community than almost anything else i could do i think so i would encourage people to find those opportunities to ask a question of the person who's iranian guy who's checking you out or bagging your uh, groceries at united or find an opportunity to visit even a somali restaurant on the northeast side of town you know uh just meet someone taking
0: it from you know, the interpersonal level to more of a community-wide level. What's your perspective on how such a large refugee population benefits the city as a whole?
1: Mm. Well, there are so many ways that they benefit the city. I, you know, I just spoke, uh, just preached a sermon to a Burmese church uh, a month or two ago, and uh, I had actually planned on sharing with them all the ways that we wanted to help them. And I woke up that morning and rewrote it, actually, feeling really burdened by my pride wanting to offer all the things that we can offer them. And instead, I got up there and I said, look, you people are so, are good for so much more than chopping meat and meatpacking plants. You have strengths and experiences and passions that can breathe fire into us. You can teach us things. You know things we don't know. And we need that. We don't grow uh, being the same. We grow with diversity. Unity, yes, but unity in diversity. And I just feel like in all aspects of life, uh, we would do better with their input. And And that's not just from people that are former doctors or judges. It's also from those people who never were taught to read and write, mm-hmm. you know, because they're a subsistence farmer from Congo. That doesn't mean that they're unintelligent. In fact, they might be more intelligent, but in a different area. And I wanna discover what those areas are and help them to thrive. With the Refugee Language
0: Project being still relatively young, mm-hmm. you know, what do you see happening with it in the coming years? Do you have like a larger goal that, that you would like to accomplish?
1: Yes, absolutely. The first component that we developed was called uh, Table Talk. And that's the shallow uh, step your foot in the shallow water and just check it out uh, sort of event. And that's a once a week opportunity to come together over a free meal and help people practice English using conversation cards. But our goal from there is to transition those people into mentorships um, in our face-to-face program. That's where people that may have gotten to know each other around the table over a meal, are now going to meet in their homes. And so we've transitioned 21 of those into uh, mentorships now who are meeting every week in their homes. And they're starting gardens. They're teaching refugees how to drive, how to code. Mm-hmm. We've got one who just helped uh, the Burmese woman get a job at United. And so what we're doing during that time, that six-month commitment... Uh, is equipping these people, finding out what makes them tick, where their passions are, and then coming alongside them. Yes, we're helping them practice their English, but through relationship. But deeper than that, we're helping them to engage with this community. We're taking them to coffee shops. We're taking them shopping. We're not sitting in a classroom. And our goal is to find people who can serve as coaches and tutors and instructors. And so the next stage is at the Howard Center, and right now that's meeting in Hillside Christian Church's uh, campus at 24th and Grand. Mm -hmm. Right now we do tutoring, but I hope to bring on refugees who we've identified in these other programs uh, as instructors, not just in English, although definitely also in English. I want a Somali woman to teach other Somali women how to speak English. I want her to teach about the citizenship uh, process from her own perspective. And I want to pay her to do it, to equip her to be hireable elsewhere. But also, you know, a Burmese person who's a songwriter, I want him to teach classes there. I want this to be a place where we identify leaders and equip them and give them the skills to be hireable outside of our organization that's the long term goal
0: and then i uh, just wanted to ask one last question in this section you know now that you have you know spent a couple of years in amarillo um, after living someplace so different from that and you've gotten involved with uh, the people here what's something that uh, maybe that you've learned about this city as a newcomer you know whether it's in terms of the people getting involved with the refugee populations, some of the challenges that you've faced here. I mean, what what have you learned
1: about MRLO? Well, what stands out to me is how independent people are here, which, funny enough, actually makes them so similar to Somali people. There are a lot of similarities, by the way. But A lot of people would probably be surprised. To yeah, hear very you' say surprised, that, but. but their extreme conservatism, their independence, their ability to uh, thrive even in the harshest weather conditions, mm-hmm. um, and their entrepreneurial spirit are um, things that Somali people have very much in common with residents of Amarillo. But connected to that, independence is this inability among people here to accept gifts, to be recipients. And all my time overseas, if there's anything it's taught me, it's that relationships are king. In most places in the world, relationships matter more than anything. And relationships are built on exchange. You can't have a healthy relationship when one person is always the giver and the other is always the recipient. And the people here are so happy with being the giver. We have such a generous community. But... They need to also be the recipient if they're to build healthy relationships. And so dealing with refugees in these sort of mentorship situations, my biggest challenge is to help people not give these refugees things. I don't want them buying them things, right? I want them to accept gifts. They're already giving their time, which is a hoarded resource most people aren't giving. I don't want them to give any more than that. A few months back, my wife was working with this woman. She goes to her house, this Burmese woman, every Monday morning. And she spent days helping their daughter get a dentist uh, dental surgery and helped her fill out all the forms. I mean, it was just a big ordeal. And after that, the woman asked my wife to go with her to the Burmese market. And Crystal, I'm sure in the back of her head, she's thinking, oh my gosh, I have so much I have to do today. I've got three kids at home, you know. But she said yes, and she went with this woman to the Burmese market and watched as this woman spent $80 buying gifts for Crystal, bought her a beautiful blanket, bought her all kinds of food to say thank you. And what Crystal noticed was that this woman was as happy as she had ever seen her. Hmm. It wasn't when Crystal was doing something for her. It's when she was finally able to be hospitable back. And that was a bigger gift. Humbling herself and letting herself receive was a bigger, more impactful gift than anything else she had done. So I want that to happen more here. What does
0: that look like to you on, I guess, on a practical day-to-day level? you know, Certainly, we can picture it with your wife and the Burmese woman. But thinking of the community, what does that mean? You mean between one another, not with the refugees? Right. Yeah, well, just in general. I mean, not everybody's going to have a relationship with a refugee that is going to require that give and take. So let's say somebody is just sitting here listening and they're thinking, that's an interesting concept. I do need to be more able to receive. What might that look like on a community-wide basis?
1: Well, one thing that's happened to me a lot is that people will not let me buy them a meal. Uh, they feel like they have to buy the meal. And maybe some of that's because I'm running a nonprofit and they feel like I'm poor or something, but I think it's more than that. I think people don't like to risk having someone else buy them their meal. I think when someone offers next time, think about saying, okay, I appreciate that and being on that receiving end. And it might make you uncomfortable, but it makes the other person feel valuable and it brings them up uh, to equal standing with you. And if, if you really want to have a deep relationship with someone, that is absolutely required. And
0: historically, Amarillo has been so isolated from everywhere else that we're accustomed to having to do everything ourselves. You mm. know? And so that sense of you know, maverick independence, if we're going to have nice things, it's because we're going to put them there and build them, I, I think probably ties into that idea that we're not comfortable mm. accepting things from people. We just as soon do it ourselves.
1: And that's good. It's a strength of this community, right? But to our detriment, because we have to understand the limitations of that, and it's not all on our shoulders. And we don't have to, we don't have to be the givers all the time.
0: Okay, let's talk about real estate. Residential sales in Amarillo are up in 2018 over last year's sales. The average single-family home price is up over last year. The listing inventory is up too. This is a great time to buy and sell a home in Amarillo. And last fall, when my family decided to sell our house and and buy another one, we chose Wick Realty to help us through that process. In the past, you know, we took the for sale by owner route, but these days there are just so many unpredictable elements that can come along. You want a hardworking, experienced professional walking alongside you during that process. Katie Wick and her agents are the best in the business. So if you're buying a home, if you're selling a home, if you're building a home, if you're looking for investment property, if any of those applies to you, get started by checking out wickrealty.com. That's W-I-E-C-K. Wick Realty is invested in seeing Amarillo flourish economically and socially for all groups of people. Okay, I'm back with Ryan Pennington of the Refugee Language Project. Ryan, this is the part of the show I call eight straight. So I'm going to ask you eight straight questions. Your job as my guest is to answer those questions in whatever degree of detail. Uh, you're the first linguist I've had on the show, so hopefully <laughs> it's not like too much detail, but we'd all get in over our heads on that. But here's your first question, uh, and this is not one that I've I've asked of anybody yet, but without naming any names, what's one particular local refugee story that has stood out to you?
1: I mention uh, a Somali friend of mine. I met him uh, by just walking right into the Somali mosque here one day. And what's interesting about him is that he is a medical doctor, uh, was with the UN working in women's health. And he was, for example, helping women to space out their um, pregnancies in order to pr- protect them. And while there, uh, Al-Shabaab called him on the phone, on his cell phone, and traced uh, his entire schedule, his daily schedule, uh, back to him as a threat mm-hmm. and said that they disagreed with what he was doing, protecting women in that way, and he was either to stop or he'd regret it. And the next day he was out of the country, and now here he is a, he's a widowed father of three, here in amarillo texas and what does he do just like any of us would do he buys two semi trucks and starts uh, a business running uh, cargo trucks all over the country Wow! <laughs> so maybe not like what most of us would do but that entrepreneurial spirit is amazing that he uh, as a medical doctor decided to do that you know i started meeting with him once a week sometimes twice a week building a relationship with this man. And I was honest with him and said, look, you're at 45, you're never gonna pass the medical boards here. But what if, what if you went to WT and got an MBA focused in healthcare management? So that's what he's doing. Wow. So he comes into my office, I tutor him, I help him do presentations for his MBA classes. And once a week, I tutor his kids and I bring my kids along. During Ramadan, I fasted with him some and then went and broke fast with with him uh, and his friends at night. And so that exemplifies that exchange. You know, I I give to him, I tutor him and spend all this time, but he teaches me Somali. He teaches me a lot about their culture, and he's kind of my doorway into that community. But the reason I wanted to share that story is because this man doesn't look— it doesn't represent the story we typically tell about refugees. And if there's one thing I would caution people, it's I would caution them against uh, paying attention to just one story. We often either vilify refugees as terrorists or as poor or stupid, or we praise them as flag-toting Americanized success stories. Right. But no single story represents the millions of refugees who have been displaced. You know, that's just an example of one, one person who is strong and capable um, and who is helping me to make this program successful here in Amarillo. Okay. This
0: is a, this is a question uh, that I'm pretty interested in the answer. As a linguist, what English phrase or word usage is the hardest for non-English speakers to understand? So as you work with a lot of these uh, professionals, you know, and adults who are trying to learn English... What's hard for them to figure
1: out? Yeah, I'd say phrasal verbs. Okay, Okay, so give an example of that. So, you know, we can say simply uh, enter, but generally we use the verb come in, which is two words using the verb come and the preposition in. And we have those all over the place. That's difficult for Spanish speakers because their Latin-based vocabulary makes them relate to the, like, "entrar" from Spanish, It's difficult for Arabic speakers because they shun informal language. But it's so much more complicated even than that, because just the verb come can be, right, come in. Then you can come across something Mm -hmm. to find it. You can come down with something and be sick. You can come up with something, which is about an idea. You can come forward, which is to bring, like, evidence about something. And so, you know, when a refugee or any English language learner uh, learns the word come, they think they've got it. And at what point are they going to have come across? When are they going to learn that? And that's... My, come from behind. Yeah. Come on over. I mean, it starts so to many. get much
0: more complicated even from that. And
1: some of them, you, you have to split. Some of them can be split and some of them can't. Uh, that's such a real challenge. And it, it should remind us and caution us about, about how far English classes can go. They're important at pointing out patterns, but at what point is a once a week English class going to cover that? Maybe year seven, you know? And so I need these people to interact with people in our community uh, in order to actually hear languages that's actually spoken. You know, that's why the ESL programs, I love what they're doing, I think that it's absolutely irreplaceable like Ann Clark at Paramount Baptist Church and Sue Kelly at First Baptist Church, they're doing incredible work. What I want is for them to continue to be that lecture while I'm the lab, while I help students to practice what they are uh, expertly teaching them each week. And they know that. They send the students away each week saying, you need to practice. Mm-hmm. I'm just trying to give them the place to practice. Often English teachers even get uncomfortable when I teach something like going right instead of going to for the future. But um, I I get why they're uncomfortable. They feel like it's gross and not uh, good English, but I don't ever say going to. No, neither do they. Exactly. They don't. When they actually think about what they say, they always say gonna. And if you want a refugee to actually thrive, they need to know how language is actually used in the real world. What does this area have too much of? I'd say there's there's a, an obsession with the national political landscape just national like news headlines mm-hmm. at the expense of focusing on our own neighborhoods it's so easy to argue on facebook about this or that rather than going out your front door and meeting your neighbor it's in our own neighborhoods where we can actually enact real change in front of our very faces and um, uh, that's one thing coming back uh, from overseas where everything was so relational.
0: And that may not be a problem even specific to Amarillo, but a problem nationwide. Yeah, that We right. tend to focus on the much larger picture than the people across the street from us.
1: That's right. But related to that is this, uh, maybe it's elsewhere. I've never lived in a place like this where there are so many garages in alleys. Mm-hmm. It really bothers me uh, because you never know when other people are home if you're in one of those neighborhoods. And it it's somehow colder. In our previous home, it was like that. And I felt like I didn't know any of my neighbors. And it wasn't until we moved to a new place and built a garden outside in our front yard, that suddenly now we have all these relationships with our neighbors and are involved in their lives. And that happened because we were out front. So I don't know, I would just, I would just like to see less complaining about the national stage and more involvement locally. What does this area not have enough of?
0: Um, Besides front-facing garages. Yeah,
1: that's right. I'd say uh, opportunities to engage with new and different things. Okay. Uh, Cultural opportunities, cultural exchange sort of things. And not just that, but even even things like, you know, I was at Six Car uh, not that long ago having this masterpiece, Vegetarian Banh Mi. Mm -hmm. Okay. And I'm eating that, and I'm hearing a man complain to his waitress that there were no— just basic bur- I think he wanted a burger and a Coors Light. Right. And I remember just thinking, well, I, I understand, but this is fascinating food. We should, it should be celebrated. And he was at the wrong restaurant. Yes, he was at he the went. wrong restaurant. I think so. But I love that, what six Car is trying to do with that. And I, I, I want us to celebrate new and different. Even when we disagree, we can still engage with it. How do you describe Amarillo to people outside the area? Uh, I definitely describe it as independent and largely conservative. But, you know, one thing I'll say is that after living in some of the most beautiful parts of our planet, in New Guinea rainforest and on the beach of Cairns, Australia, one thing that struck me about those places is that people take pilgrimages there to worship the beautiful landscape. Mm -hmm. And it's transient. People are coming and going. They're just visiting to see this beautiful place. And that's easy and wonderful and awe-inspiring, but Amarillo has people who aren't going anywhere, deep community ties. And I feel like people are worth celebrating far more than uh, any natural creation, any uh, beach or mountain, and so I love the thought of studying people and understanding what makes them tick and serving them in community. And in Amarillo, like so many of your, uh, so many of the people on this podcast have said, is has a very strong community. I think that's something worth celebrating. What's your favorite Amarillo restaurant? Yeah, I'd have to say Thai Taste. That's on Hillside near Coulter. Mm-hmm. Uh, they helped cater our Table Talk program, and they're just so gracious and kind. It's really about the relationships.
0: And the family behind that is a refugee family, is that right?
1: Yes, they are. TL um, came uh, with a bunch of Lao people back in the 90s. And yeah, I I love that place. I'd encourage anyone to try it out. Great Thai food, too.
0: That's that's our Thai food place of choice. Uh, What's your favorite kind of local weather? The weather here is very different, I suppose, from uh, Uh, Papua New Guinea.
1: It is, where we'd get up to eight inches of rain in a single day on occasion. And and that's what I'd say is the days where we get real rain, uh, it's different, it stands out, and you know when there are days like that, I I want to stop everything and go sit on my back porch and just listen to mm-hmm. it, uh, and it brings me back to the rainforest. So, yeah, I really love that.
0: Okay, and uh, this is a question I ask of quite a few guests. When was the last time you visited Cadillac Ranch? I
1: actually go there fairly often. Six weeks ago is the last time, and maybe two weeks before that, because I have people uh, visiting me from other cities often, and I bring them, and we buy a bunch of spray paint and go out there. It's fun, kid-friendly, and it's unique, and pretty close to my house, too. Yeah.
0: All right. Well, the the last thing I like to ask of my guests, Ryan, is uh, for them to provide an endorsement. So, considering the things that somebody might experience in Amarillo or, or might want to know about, what would you endorse?
1: You know, I'd like to endorse uh, actually something called the Refugee Advisory Council. And it's uh, kind of led by Lacey Scott, uh, who is in the City Health Office working with Refugee Health. And um, this group is so supportive. They, it's people from the school district, people from uh, local churches, people from refugee resettlement agencies, and we all come around the table at Paramount Baptist uh, once a quarter. And just talk about what's going well and what's not and anyone is welcome to come and learn and share and see how they could get involved and and Lacey is just uh she's an incredible person and in how she builds camaraderie among that group she's done a great job are those meetings posted somewhere not that i know of uh but anyone could get in touch with me at the next one will be early september okay all right. Well, Ryan Pennington, thank you so much for being on the Hamrello podcast. I thanks, appreciate Jason. it. and I Man, I really had a good time.
0: And that
1: concludes the episode. Uh,
0: I want to say thanks to Wick Realty for sponsoring the show this week, and to Ryan Pennington for a really fascinating conversation. You can learn more about the Refugee Language Project and get involved with its efforts at refugeelanguage.org. It operates under the oversight of Redeemer Christian Church. You can learn more about this podcast at com, at uh, HeyAmarillo on Twitter and on Facebook. Look us up on Instagram at hey podcast. follow us there. Uh, and tell a friend about the show. I always appreciate the reviews online. Uh, I appreciate hearing from people who uh, just want to give me feedback about the episodes, all of that. Love it. Thank you for listening. My name is Jason Boyette, and I'll see you next week.